0: So here's something most people don't know about me, and that is that I really enjoy cover songs. Uh, I, I, love it, I love it when other artists, even YouTube musicians, uh, they take original songs, and a lot of times they make them even better. Uh, one example is a while back, an artist, I saw a reel of Pink. Any, any of you familiar with Pink? Okay, all right. So it's okay to admit that in church. This is a safe place. So uh, a few years ago, Pink had actually partnered with a company to do a segment where she would watch YouTube videos of YouTube artists covering her songs and then uh, her, she would comment. And so this is a clip of her seven years ago watching a young Dutch singer named Davina Michelle, and she's doing a cover of one of Pink's songs, What About Us? And then it shows her reaction. Who's this? That's better than I will ever sound. The The us is all of us that feel unwanted and forgotten and invisible. Okay, well that's just rude. It was fine. Actually now I know how it's supposed to sound. Is she like a recording artist that makes records and puts records out? Okay, well that needs to change. So yeah, it was fantastic. Actually if you Google that whole cover, it is just phenomenal. And now one of the cool things that happened was is then there was a clip of the artist Vina actually seeing Pink watch that and Pink actually ended up inviting her to come with tour on her in Amsterdam. And now Davina is doing concerts of her own. So it's kind of a cool story. And I share all this because it, it actually sets us up for what we're talking about today. Because for three years, Jesus preached, and he taught, and he healed, and he did miracles, and he had followers who heard and saw it all. And then right before he left this earth, he gave this command to his closest followers. He says, you've watched me, you've followed me, you've listened to me, the original. In essence, I'm the original artist, essentially he was communicating, I want you now to go global, and I want you to cover me. I want you to reflect everything you have seen and heard and then do it so well that when people see and hear you, that they will see and hear me. Cover me in such a way after people hear you, they will become fans of me who will become followers, who will make more fans, who will become more followers. In other words, they were the original cover band. And they were to cover Jesus in such a way that people, it would get their attention and they would go, wow. And that's exactly what they did. And in in, in every generation, there's always been a remnant that has been an amazing cover of the original. And in many areas of the world, the movement begun by Jesus has flourished. But at the same time, in every generation to the current day, there have been some awful cover versions as well awful representations of what Jesus is like and what it means to be a Jesus follower. And as a result, there are many people who have been turned off not by Jesus, but by horrible covers of Jesus. There are people who have walked away who aren't interested in joining our faith, or they've got one foot out, not primarily because of the main act, but because of us. And the big reason why, as we said in this series, is one of the big reasons is because at some point, very early on, non-essentials got introduced into the Jesus movement, begun by Jesus. And all these add-ons and non-essentials were made central and came to define the church or Christianity. Things that Jesus never intended to be included. Or let alone essential. And as a result, thoughtful people have stepped and are stepping away. Lots of people, you've heard this word, they're deconstructing when it comes to their faith, and maybe that's you. For sure, it's somebody that you know and care about. Whether, where you've sensed something was off in your church experience, you've sensed something was off in your experience with Christians, maybe the tone or the posture or their approach towards you or someone else that you know or love, and it was deemed Christian, but it didn't feel very Christ-like. And the good news is that there is nothing wrong with deconstructing unless we fail to reconstruct, which is why we're doing this series, because there are some things we do need to leave behind. There are some things we do need to get rid of, but that's not the end. We don't just give up and let whatever fill that space, because there are some things that we understand we need to replace those non-essentials with core essentials. So we're asking the question in this series, if we strip it all away and start from the very beginning, what are the fundamental foundational core things that you need to believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus? What's essential? And these build on one another. So if you've missed any of these, you really need to get online and either listen to the videos or listen to the podcast. We started out week one with the fundamental that this is the reference point for all others. And that is that Jesus is God's son and our king. This is the foundational fundamental that one needs to believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus. The second fundamental that Jesus stated unequivocally is that he came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. That if you want to know what God, the creator of the universe, is like, if you want to know what the Father is like, if you want to know how God sees you, how God sees the world, how God sees other, how God... God loves. Jesus said, then you look at me, you watch how I love, watch how I live my life, because I came to illustrate and demonstrate what God the Father is like. And while he walked this earth, Jesus talked a lot about sin, separating us from God, and the destructiveness of sin in our lives. And he talked about walking away from sin, and and, and we must believe in and accept Jesus's definition of sin, that Jesus defines sin as anything that harms you or others. Because God is the embodiment of love, and God loves you, and He loves the you's around you. And He doesn't want you to harm yourself or harm the people around you. Our fourth fundamental connects to the fact that the world is filled with suffering and pain and injustice, which makes us ask, God, why don't you do something? Which leads to our fourth fundamental, and that is that we believe that Jesus promises that one day He's going to set everything right, that there will be a final judgment. So we must believe Jesus, when he says that he promised justice in the end, and he invites us to trust him in the meantime, that when we see things wrong in the world, see things wrong in our world, feel like somebody's got to do something about this, Jesus says, trust me, I am. Our fifth fundamental belief to be a faithful follower of Jesus is that Jesus died for your sins to reconcile you to God. So the good news for you... If you're someone, or someone you, or someone you know has a bad taste in their mouth about Christianity and the church, is that faith in Christians is non-essential? That when it comes to following Jesus, in other words, we wouldn't blame the songwriter, uh, the songwriter for someone butchering their song, right? If somebody's playing Beethoven or Mozart and they're doing it poorly, who do you blame? The original or the one that's doing it poorly? They. But the problem is, in is Christianity, is, this has become a common thing, and it's been common for a long time, that individuals reject the original because of the ones doing a bad job covering the original. And as the quote says, which has been misattributed to Gandhi for years, but Gandhi was a student of Christ. The quote is, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And this has been true for millions. So the question is, how do we change that? And I don't mean this as some ethereal we. I mean we, like literally we. How do we begin to change this and transform the view of everyone around us as to what Christ is like and how they view Christ and how they view the church and Christians? In order to get back to our next fundamental, we just have to go back to to week one's fundamental. Jesus is God's son and our king because this is the reference point for all the rest and we're going to go back to the very same passage that we unpacked in the first week, in Matthew chapter 16. And if you have a Bible or Bible app, I'd love for you to follow along. But in Matthew 16, Jesus asked this question of his closest followers: "Who do you believe the Son of Man is?" And they would have been familiar with this title, the Son of Man, because it came from the Hebrew Scriptures, what we refer to as the Old Testament, as to who God set up as the ultimate authority in the world. And And they replied, some of them replied, most people believe you're a reincarnated prophet of old. Some believe that you're embodying the spirit of John the Baptist, his cousin who had recently been beheaded. But Jesus said to them, okay, but but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter, who I relate to because he was almost always ready, fire, aim, he answers, "You're, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this time he got it right. And this was the first time that anyone had ever declared who Jesus was and who He came to represent, that He was God's Son and our final King. This is the only thing the church has consistently agreed on in 2,000 years, that He's the one that we're surrendered to, to live our lives according to the way He says we should live our lives. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven, that you are correct. And this eternal truth was revealed to you by God, and it's foundationally important. And we stopped here the first week, but what comes after is absolutely critical to understanding our next essential. Jesus refers to Peter as Simon, son of Jonah. But early on, Jesus changed his name. He gives him a nickname, which was common in this culture and almost always very meaningful. Many of you are familiar with Abram, and his name was changed to Abraham. Sarai was changed to Sarah. Jacob was changed to Israel. And after encountering Jesus, Saul changed his name to Paul. And there's this rich history and significance about being given a a new name, especially in this culture. And Jesus says to Simon, I tell you, you are Peter. This was a nickname Jesus had given to Simon when he first met him. And the word cephas or petros in the Greek, Peter means rock, like a rock you could throw in your hand and, and throw and here's just one example of how rich the Gospels are if we pay attention and become a student. Here's something that you all may have never noticed before, but you will now notice from this point forward, that when you read, and I hope you do, anytime Peter was doing well as a disciple, Jesus refers to him as Peter. But most of the times where Peter's getting off course, he refers to him with his old pre-Jesus name, Simon. Simon. Here's just one example from the book of Matthew. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Well, yes, he does. Again, Jesus, Peter's ready, fire, aim. He felt cornered. He got flustered. He just said the first thing that came to mind. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think? Here it is, Simon. He asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duties and taxes, from their children or others? Well, from others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake, throw out a line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four-drop coin. Motivation, go fishing. Uh, Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. See, Jesus was the master, teacher, and leader. And the Gospels are just so rich when we pay attention. And now that you know that little detail... Jesus' wordplay with Peter's name becomes even more meaningful. Jesus replies, and I tell you that you are Petros, that you are Peter. Again, rock. And on this Petra, this bedrock, on this bedrock, this immovable foundation being the fact that I am exactly who and what you have declared on that, I will build my ecclesia, my congregation, my assembly, or in Latin, my church. Yes, Peter, I am the ultimate authority, your Messiah, your Savior, and this rock of truth. Jesus says, I'm going to build my gathering, my movement of followers, and that's how it happened. Now, some interpret this to mean that Jesus was passing the baton off to Peter, but that's not what he did. He made it clear, I am passing my baton off to a group of people who will join together, united, characterized by the central belief in me as their ultimate authority, their final king. The Apostle Paul would write write later to a young church in Corinth in his letter, he uses a metaphor that everyone could understand. The human body. That just like the human body has many parts, and that those many parts make up the one whole body, so it is with the body of Christ. That the body of Christ has many parts, and just as it's unnatural or dysfunctional for a part of the human body to be disconnected or to be dismembered from the overall body, the same is true of the body of Christ. And he, he gives this summary statement, God has put together, put the body together, so that there should be no division in the body, but that his part should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. He says, look, all of you together, gathered together, are Christ's body, and each of you are part of it, and all the individual parts need all the other parts to be healthy, and connected, and functioning in harmony. Christ passes baton not off to an individual. Christ passed this baton to a body of believers who exhibit faith collectively. Not just each of us on our own, but a collection of people who are gathering together to represent Jesus. This was his plan A for how he was going to do his greatest work in and through people like you and me and build his church. It's by the church being the church. This was his plan A for how he was going to move the movement forward. That his followers would be utterly connected and interdependent with one another. On other people. So that other people would be able to experience him and experience his love and experience his life. In, in, in his book, Connecting, an author named Larry Crabb, he writes this. The absolute center of what God does to help us change is to reveal himself to us, to give us a taste of what he's really like, to pour his life into us. And a critical element of the revealing process is to take place, to, the revealing process is to place us in a community of people who are enough like him to give us that taste firsthand. And if that's true, If a powerful experience of God comes through others, then connecting with others plays a vital, indispensable, powerful role in effectively addressing the core issues of our soul. The issues that lie beneath all of our personal, emotional, and psychological problems. Showing up with one another, for one another. This is how we encounter Jesus. It's what I experienced on March 20th, 1988, when at 19 Station San Diego, I walked into Faith Chapel, Spring Valley, California, and every single time I give my personal testimony, I talk about what I experienced from the moment that I walked in to this huge building at these exact coordinates on my arm. Because it wasn't about a building, and it wasn't about just one person. It was the collective of people who showed up that day. It was everyone who physically was there, who I saw, as I saw them interact with one another, how they interacted with me. It was what I experienced, what I observed with a group of people who were physically and emotionally present on that Sunday morning, and something intangible happened. I felt something. I experienced something. Something so beautiful that it connected with me to the level of my soul, it's why, part of why I so desperately want all of you to consistently show up every single weekend in person, not ever just about going to church, but because fundamental six, that the church collectively is God's agent of transformation personally, culturally, globally. The church collectively is how we and others experience Jesus and sometimes it can be so subtle. Other times it can be dramatic. But in the end, we experience the fullness of Jesus in the body when the body gathers. Because the body gathering together is the representation of Jesus. That's who he passed the baton on to. So when we gather as the body, we don't just gather to set up equipment in a university-owned building. We don't just gather to sing three or four songs and hear a sermon. We don't just gather to set up children's rooms on weekends when we're fully staffed, to give parents an uninterrupted hour and ten minutes with other adults. We gather together so that those who join us for the first time on any given weekend might experience the transformational power of Jesus, and that we might experience it week after week after week. And when people come for the first time, We seek to engage them as we consistently engage, if we consistently engage. We are transformed personally. We become more like Jesus. And as we're transformed individually within the community and the body of Christ, then we scatter back out into our individual world to become Jesus' agents of cultural and global change to the world around us. This is the way Jesus designed it to work. However, in our world, the gathering is swimming upstream a little bit, and in more ways than one, it's getting stronger because we are deep into what started around the mid-20th century, the information age, which is characterized primarily by technological advancements. And these technological advancements, they've revolutionized efficiency, they've transformed connection, they have fostered individualization, and it's done all of these things for better and for worse. The way you are able to get more done in less time, the way you're able to stay more connected with more people, it's all at its highest rate in history. And all of those things are positive things. But while many of these have improved our world, they have also had some unintended consequences. Most of you know, and some of you have seen it in your kids, Gen Z is statistically the most highly... ...loneliest generation in the history of humanity. Social media, YouTube, online engagement, it connects and informs people in unprecedented ways, but it also isolates people in unprecedented ways. And we're just beginning to experience the effects of it in our world. And as true, authentic, interdependent interdependent human connection gets left behind, something else gets left behind. Incarnation gets left behind. Now for some of you, the term incarnation might be a new word. Incarnation simply means embodied or taking on flesh. It's usually attributed to Jesus. That the incarnation of God was when Jesus came and took flesh on in human form. It was God's way of saying, I am not some far off, impersonal, cosmic dictator who's ruling and regulating the world. I am personally connected to you. I have personal concern for your lives, that God came to be with us. This is, why we celebrate, this is what we celebrate at Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus, when he left this earth, this is so important, he passed that incarnation, that God in us, that God with us, baton to you and to me. And he sent his spirit to empower us collectively, not just individually, to be collectively his representation, his agent of transformation in each other's lives that as we speak truth and encourage and challenge one another and build each other up, that we transform. But it's bigger than just any individual because we are part of a body. And collectively, we become His agent of transformation culturally and globally. And in this age in history, the gathering of the local church, the body of Christ, is the incarnation of God. And for most of us, we, we miss this. We miss the significance of this. How important this is. And to make it worse, the cultural shift hasn't just isolated people outside the church, but within the church. Because it's not just those outside the church. Many Christians and Jesus followers view attending the gathering of the church as non-essential. And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just pointing to an objective reality that if you look at our behavior or activity, many of us view gathering and attending The gathering with other believers is non-essential. This is something that actually began many years ago, but it really ramped up and accelerated during COVID. In fact, some of you, you remember how during COVID shutdown, all services deemed non-essentials were shut down. And the church stopped gathering in person because it was deemed non-essential. And like most churches, we did our best to get creative as we continue to gather online. And while we pivoted by not gathering Physically in person, temporarily, the perception of many outside and inside the church is that gathering together isn't essential. And it accelerated something that was already beginning. The Barnus Group did a study on the state of the church looking at trends over a 10 year period. The study looked at the period from 2010 to 2020 and they discovered that the percentage of, quote, practicing Christians or Christians who regularly engaged in Bible study or prayer or small groups who regularly were part of a local church, it dropped from 47% in 2010 to 25% in 2020. Almost in half. And in that same period, non-practicing Christians who identify as Christian, but that's it, it rose from 33 to 43%. In fact, for the first time in American history, the percentage of non-practicing Christians is greater, significantly greater, than, non, than, than practicing Christians. So this is our current reality. This is how see people see Christianity and how people see the church. This trend is the view. The church is non-essential. But the question is, is that true? Is the gathering of the church, people attending church, you showing up here in person and gathering in a local body, interacting with other believers, is it essential? Is the church essential? And because of the ways that isolation, depression, anxiety, are trending in culture where the rate of suicide has nearly doubled for those in the 10 to 14 age group, Suicide has nearly tripled for those in the 15 to 24 age group. In the most superficially connected, isolated, lonely, depressed, anxious generation of our time, I'm convinced that the gathering is more important than ever. Because the gathering provides something that nothing else can it provides being consistently in proximity to one another, the opportunity to be progressively, continuously, and increasingly challenging and encouraging one another and spurring each other forward in our lives and in our following of Jesus and building, building each other up and ultimately being a light in this dark world, in our world, in our little worlds. And gathering together, I've, I've often used my physical help as, as an example Rogue One. <laughs> I've often used my physical health as an example. I fully embrace, especially since major, two major football players apparently have made it the right thing, I embrace my dad bod status at 55. Uh, the objective truth is that from my mid-40s to today, that I've been able to complete three 12-mile Tough Mudder obstacle runs multiple 5K obstacle runs, several 5Ks, my personal best at the age of 50 at under 24 minutes, countless hours of racquetball, and at 55, just stating objective reality that I can still, to my joy, outlift and outwater ski most guys half my age. Uh, Sitting on the beach with my sons a couple years ago, my sons, were all sitting there in swimsuits on the beach, talking about their bodies, talking about working out. when One of them pointed at me and said, all I know is, if I can look at like father time over here, when I'm in my 50s, I'll be happy. To which I felt complimented and insulted all at once. But here's my point. There's a reason why I'm able to say those things and experience these things. And something so important. I couldn't experience anything like that by attempting to just exercise alone at home. I can't do it. And it's not for lack of equipment because during COVID shutdown, I actually got an amazing deal from a buddy of mine that was moving. I got a full entire gym from him that I was able to put in my basement. The gym was shut down. I had it down there for three full months. Guess how many days I used it? Five at the most. Two was probably more correct. And then I sold it. I I go to the Y on purpose, because even if I don't talk to the people around me, there is something about the environment. There's something about the collective energy of people all around me going after the same thing. In this context, physical health, physical strength, physical improvement, and physical endurance. And physically being there, it doesn't just provide me with quick access to some of the best tools and resources for physical improvement, it provides me what you can only experience when you put yourself in that type of environment, collective energy. And that collective energy is what fuels me. I just acknowledge I need it. And the seasons in which I experienced the greatest gains, whether it was in strength or in endurance, was always one of those seasons where I had at least one person meeting me there either to compete against me or to work out with me which is one of my arguments for all of you being connected to at least 2 to 12 people in a small group. In fact, just last week, I actually reached out to a trainer who also focuses on diet because the leather belt never lies. And my leather belt has acknowledged that I have added a bit of girth to my midsection. And At this point, I refuse to buy another belt or buy any more jeans. I can't blame it on the holidays anymore. It's like February, right? But I have been unable to deal with it on my own. So I'm leaning into another for guidance, for support, for accountability. But my point is just simply this by choosing, by choosing to make it a priority to put myself in specific environments to help me improve physically and doing it consistently, four to five days a week, I'm able to experience the progress and benefits of better physical health, strength, endurance. And by consistently putting myself into that environment, relationships are organically formed. Relationships in where we spur one another on, and if we don't see the other, we make fun of each other. And as I've gotten to know others that have gotten to know me, it's gone even deeper. Most recently, I had an individual come because of that regular proximity to one another who came to talk to me because they were considering suicide. And by being consistently around one another, he came to believe that I was someone that he could trust to talk to. But here's my point, that just like that, the gathering of the church, even if you feel like there are Sundays, and I get it, you feel like you're dragging your butt out of bed on Sunday morning, especially if you were up late Saturday night, you're kept up late, and you're getting ready, you're getting in the car, it might be 80 degrees, it might be zero degrees, and showing up to gather in person doesn't matter. It matters so much far more than you realize for you and for those around you. And just like physical diet and exercise, you may not see improvements, dramatic improvements within days or even weeks, but consistently showing up, being present over time, that is what makes the difference. This is where we get to experience the transformational power of Jesus Christ over time, especially when the larger group also gathers in smaller groups, throughout the week. So is the church essential? Absolutely. But the next question is, with so many people having such an unfavorable view of Christianity, is, is the church salvageable? Because in America, the perception of the church and Christianity is descending significantly. But I'll let Jesus answer the question. Jesus says to Peter, and He says to us, I will build My church. And the gates of Hades, the grave, the place of the dead, the underworld... It will not overcome it. This is Jesus going, come hell or high water, with the same power that will raise me from the dead, and it did. And with the same power that would cause my movement to grow against all odds. And in the hellish religious and cultural conditions of the first century, the ecclesia did. He says, my gathering will grow. That's exactly what happened. It started among the Jewish people gathering. It spread to the Greeks and the Romans who began to gather. And it transformed and it toppled an entire empire. It swept across Europe and parts of Africa. And as more and more Jesus followers began to gather and serve together, it shaped the West. It shaped the culture that we live in now. And it happened as those people who claimed faith in Jesus gathered in community. They showed up for one another. And then they showed up for their communities, for the people around them, covering, expressing the unconditional, sacrificial love of Jesus. Showing up in person, was a core essential in the first church among the first believers. That's why the writer of Hebrews said, let us hold unswervingly. Let us not veer off course, but let us hold steadfast to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. How? How do we do that? How do we stay on course? By not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another, which requires proximity to one another, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Earlier in the book, the writer tells us to encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, meaning by everything that life and culture is going to throw at us that could cause us to lose hope and lose faith. But to do this, bottom line, it requires frequency consistency proximity to one another the habit of meeting together was maybe the most important central practice of the early jesus followers that enabled them to have hope in seemingly hopeless circumstances to change the world in the course of history gathering together was it was not optional it was not peripheral it was essential so if you're listening to me today i just i just want to push a little bit because i love you And because of what we're trying to accomplish individually and collectively is important. If you've gotten out of the habit of consistently, weekly being part of the gathering, of meeting together, and there's nothing physically preventing you, it's time to change that habit. If maybe this is a new concept to you because this whole church thing is new to you, I just want to encourage you to make it a habit. I can't tell you how many people over the years who have said to me, you know, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And you know what? That's true. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian because you can define Christian any way you want and justify any behavior you want. But that's not the question we're trying to answer in this in this series. The question we're trying to answer in this series is what exactly must someone to believe to be a faithful follower of Jesus? What's fundamental or essential to be a faithful follower? a disciple of Jesus. And according to Jesus and the New Testament writers and the world-changing early followers, the gathering is essential for you and for the people around you to experience the transformational work of God that He wants to do in and through your life, which is to help people find and follow Jesus, to inspire people to follow Jesus. And one of the critical ways we do that is by engaging them in the life and the mission and the gathering of our church, of this church. You are part of a body, which means that every time you show up, it matters. It matters for you and for those around you, and you may never realize it. God designed humanity such that we would need one another so it makes perfect sense that Jesus didn't pass a baton to a person. He passed the baton to a gathering, an active gathering of active believers because that's what activates the transformational power in our world. When we gather and each one plays their part, lives are transformed. Marriages are transformed. God through His Spirit restores families and hearts and he mends, they're mended. Addictions are broken. Purpose is realized. Lives are rescued forever. Choosing to show up and engage in the life and the mission of the church can make all the difference for you and someone around you. The church of God, the church is God's agent of transformation personally. Culturally and globally. So like all those people gathered that first day, when I walked in the church in Southern California, they had no idea how their physical presence would be used by God to make a difference, to transform a young 19-year-old airman's life. And for us, nearly every Sunday is somebody's first Sunday, and you have no idea how your presence may impact their lives forever. So let's make a habit of showing up for each other on Sundays, but not just Sundays, on Monday through Saturday, through the week, in homes, on Sunday afternoons, because right before Jesus left this earth, he gave this command to his followers. You have watched me, followed me, listened to me. Now I want you to go and globally represent me, cover everything you have seen and heard so that you do it so well that when people see and hear you individually and collectively, they see me. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this for our church community. I pray this for each one of us. That God, that within the weekend gathering, that we would experience you through one another. That God, that you would just organically form relationships that you have arranged. It's no accident that any one of us is a part of this community. And that Father, throughout the week, that you would use us, that we would use the the strength that we gain, the maturity that we gain, the growth that we experience. That Father, when we leave throughout the week, that Father, that you will use us to make a difference in the lives of others that we may have no idea that they're watching us to begin with. And so, Father, I pray all these things in, in the name of Jesus. Amen.